Good morning. As Don said, my name is uh, Keith, Keith Workington. For those who uh, don't know me, I am a member here uh, at Trinity. I get to lead the youth. I've only spoken a couple times before, uh, but I look forward to bringing the message uh, again today. Today we'll be looking at Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 to 14. If you're able to flip there in your Bibles, that's Galatians 3, 10 to 14. Once you have it, please stand as we read the word. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by faith in them, shall live in them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. You may remember I spoke last year on Good Friday as well, and as I was preparing this, I started to reflect a little bit and realized that it sounds awfully similar. <laughs> uh, even though I am speaking on a different passage, uh, you'll notice there's a lot of similarities. It's because the gospel has a central theme, and that theme is Christ wrote all the text. I don't think it uh, should ever sound cliche because nothing could ever be more exciting or further from the truth. Uh, every year on Good Friday, we remember what Christ did for us on that cross. But what did that transaction look like? What was the price being paid? What does it mean to be cursed? Why did Christ have to come die on a tree? What, what does it mean to be cursed? Starting in verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written... Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Why are we cursed if we put our trust in relying on works? Aren't we commanded to do that? Why are we cursed? Because we cannot obey the law. We all know that nobody's perfect, right? Save from what? Paul in Romans says the wages of sin is death. That seems a bit extreme, right? I mean, won't God see people's good deeds outweigh the bad, right? Like, being a Christian, believe in Jesus and do more good than evil, right? You might ask the average person on the street, how, how do I get to heaven? And that's sadly what they believe, that if, you're, if your good deeds outweigh the bad, then you're, you're good. That's all it takes. I think it's pretty hard to live around here or anywhere in North America to have made it your whole life without hearing something about Jesus Christ saving us from our sins. But why is this at all even a problem? What's, what's wrong with our sin? And is it really a big part of who we are? Is it really worthy of death? Can't we be good people? We, say, we so quickly say nothing's wrong unless it hurts someone else. Other than that, you do you, right? No, we are defying the creator of the universe who made us when we worship him. A side, a side note I want to quickly uh, uh, mention, you hear people say stuff like, 
you do you. It's, as long as you're not hurting anyone else, it's fine. But I, I just want to throw it. God has punished entire nations because of nations' sins. It, it, it affects everyone. It, it, we are all guilty of sin. I think of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? The destruction of it. It was because of the nation's sins. And uh, so absolutely it does affect everyone. So there's a second question that I asked before. How big of a part of our life is our sin? How big is our sin nature? I've heard it said that there are three different possibilities of our sin state before God. The first one, which many people, even atheists, would attest is not true, although they have no philosophical reputation for it, we are all good. <laughs> Mankind has a good heart, and we don't need any help. If you're not li- living frozen in carbonite, you know this is not true, <laughs> and that is not a view accepted in uh, Orthodox Christianity. The second view, which I believe to be the most widely accepted in uh, the Nor- North American church right now, at least from my view, is that we are partly good, but still corrupted by sin. People in this camp may vary in the weights. Some here say that people are mostly good. We just mess up from time to time, and we just need a bit of a a spiritual top-up of the gas tank, so to speak. But it varies from good people, like, I was trying to think of who the world thinks is good, and I figured, you know what, the internet calls Keanu Reeves, Keanu Reeves, the internet's boyfriend, so he must be a good person. But... We all agree that bad people are like Hitler and Stalin, so we have easier examples of that. But they would say there's a varying degree. Some people are more good than bad. Some people have a little bit of good in them, however you want to see it. But there's a third option, which I believe to be the most accurate and what the Bible describes, and that is that there is no one that is good, no, not one, and there's not a single shred of our being that is righteous. Without going too far into it, Uh, I want to address some scriptures that speak to this a little bit. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it above all things? Romans 8.7 says that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Ephesians 2 said, We were dead in our trespasses. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We've all become like one who is unclean and describes our righteousness as menstrual rags. Like, can it be any more vile than that? That our good deeds, the things that we think that we can actually do that are good apart from Christ, are worth anything? I don't believe the scriptures are being hyperbolic when it says we are dead in our sins. Apart from Christ, we cannot do good and we cannot store up righteousness I can hear objections right now in maybe some people's minds but Keith this doesn't mean we are as bad as we can be always right I know lots of people who aren't Christians who do good things like give to charity they volunteer they feed the homeless sometimes more than Christians people aren't as bad as they can possibly be all the time they aren't burning each other's homes they're not murdering each other's families every Tuesday night instead of bullying. Heck, they might even return a wallet with the cash still in it. But this isn't because they're good. They're doing it because of what they desire. It's out of selfishness. It's out of pride. They feel good when they do these things. It suppresses the guilt. 
We like the way we look when we write a big check for like an organization or a charity like Save the Endangered Albino Turtles of the Oceans Club. I, I don't think that's real. Probably not real. <laughs> Without having a complete overhaul of our sin nature, we are dead in our sin. That's why when you hear people say, uh, used to be a phrase that I heard more, not as much anymore, it's a miracle when someone repents and puts their trust in Christ. They aren't wrong. It is nothing short of a miracle. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Notice the change. Very real. Not a mystical shift. It's a real shift. It's a shift in our desires, the very things that we want. We once hated God. Every thought and intention of our heart was self-serving. In denial, in denial of the very one who created us in his image. We were murderers of his image bearers in our hearts when we hated each other. We committed idolatry when we create our own idea of who God is. And when I say stuff like, I believe God is like X, Y, and Z, when he is clearly revealed otherwise in his very word, at that moment, we are committing idolatry. When, when you hear people Say, I only believe in a God who is like this. He, and then they start defining what love is. All they're doing is creating a false idol. We say with every moment of our breath that God is not the creator, that we are in fact God ourselves. You are stealing resources and borrow breath in your lungs and will be accountable for every sin that you commit. I think this is an important foundation for understanding the debt that we owe is knowing our sin nature. So no, all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And that is no small statement to pass over. It's not just our sin, but it's our very sin nature that needs to be overhauled. I want to quote a street preacher I enjoy listening to. Uh, some of you might have heard of him, uh, Ray Comfort. He's from New Zealand. And uh, so he'll, he'll talk to people. He'll ask them, do you think you're a good person? And he'll often go through the Ten Commandments. He'll ask them, do you believe that you've ever lied before? Pretty much everyone without a doubt will say, yeah, who hasn't? Yeah, I've lied. Okay, okay, moving on. Have you ever stolen something irrelevant of its value? And they'll say, uh, yep, yeah, I've, I've stolen something because they've probably stolen a thing when they're a kid or something. He asks if they've ever committed uh, adultery or uh, practiced uh, lust in their hearts, Right? And he goes through all the Ten Commandments, and everyone realizes, okay, yeah, yeah, I've done all these things. And then he asks them again. So innocent or guilty? Guilty. If God judges you based on the Ten Commandments on Judgment Day, heaven or hell? People have to get really quiet. Uh, even the ones who are staunch atheists or whatever they proclaimed at the beginning of the statement, there isn't a, you can see the emotional wheels turning in their head, and they don't know what to do with it. Brothers and sisters, we have a large debt, and that price is very, very high, and that's an understatement. And this ties well to what the following verse is in today's passages in verse 11. Galatians 3, verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. In our sinful state, no one is able to follow the law. We need the law to reveal to us 
what we have become indifferent to. So the law, it acts like a mirror, showing our depravity and how we've rejected God. The law is written on our hearts, but we've suppressed our consciences. But the word reveals to us how far we've tried to separate ourselves from his truth and the reality which belongs to him that he's created. We have done this to the point that we don't even know what a woman is anymore. We treat it like it's fine to kill babies strictly in the name of choice. We call anything that we lust after love. And we use the word love in a blank check sort of way so that no one can dispute whatever you have to say. We have all turned uh, away from God. We do this all as long as it doesn't harm our neighbors, like I said before. This mirror shows our very state without being justified before God. Going to the conscience thing, last night I was uh, listening to a, an atheist talk about how he, he still struggles with the emotional trauma of being raised, being taught that he's going to hell if he doesn't repent. And he talked about how, how hard it's, it's emotionally affected him. And to uh, someone listening, it sounds compelling. It sounds tragic. That, wow, I, I can't, I, that's horrible. That you still lie awake at night worried about hell even though you've, you're so sophisticated and logical to know that there is no such thing. But I believe that's a real guilt and a shame that he's experiencing and he knows, sorry, not shame, it's, it's the guilt that gets to him and he realizes that he is in fact a sinner and this is indeed his trajectory. We know from other texts that our justification is only possible by grace through faith in Christ alone and not by the works of the law. And this, em- and this emphasizes that again. Oh, sorry. We're, this is moving on to verse 12. I <laughs> missed the spot. Verse 12 says, But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by faith. We know from other texts that our justification is only possible by grace through faith in Christ alone not by the works of the law. And this emphasizes that again. Here we see that the law itself is not the saving grace, but that which it points to in the law. You'll notice the emphasis in the past three verses that we talked about is showing that trusting in our ability to obey the entirety of the law is where we will fill. Verse 12 reminds me of uh, John 5, verse 39, where Jesus tells the audience, you search the scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness to me. The law, the scriptures, all of it points to Christ. Even if you could obey all of them, you still need faith to be in the right relationship with the triune God. The Pharisees believed that they could work their way to God by the laws written, thinking that it would save them, but the sacrifices of the laws were pointing to the one who could actually fulfill it. It's an important note that there is a ditch to be pointed out. This is not a license to sin because we're covered. Verse 12 says, The one who does them shall live by faith. Us being rooted in Christ is more than just saying some words and you're good. Yes, when we are born again, we are saved. We do have security in that. We have eternity. But the proof comes from its fruits. Jesus said, in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23, to them, plainly, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, 
but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Many will be deceived into thinking they are saved. But Jesus says on the day of judgment, the Father says, I never knew you. Depart from me. They never knew him. James 2 talks about our faith without works is dead. Dead. Without our fruits, we have no evidence for a faith in us to begin with. It's not a weak faith. It's not a still, small heartbeat. It's dead. The Father says to them, I never knew you dead. Not once, not ever dead. Paul asks in Romans 6, What shall we say then? Are we to keep going on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Does this mean that we are, once we're born again, we'll be without sin perfectly till we die? No. We are justified once, but the fruits of that is a process. That process we call sanctification. But there will be a change of heart. We will have our heart of stone removed. We will become more like Christ. This happens at justification. From conversion, you are saved. I want to clarify, it's not a conversion than X number of proofs. Like, think of the thief on the cross. He didn't have time to change. It was a, a moment in time he was, he was saved. He repented and put his trust in Christ. It maybe wasn't a complete understanding like we know it, but he had faith that Christ could save him. But this, I don't want to leave anyone thinking that we can't know if we're saved. We can, in fact, have assurance of salvation. We can trust that if we have repented and put our trust in what Christ did for us on the cross, that we have eternal life. And this transitions well into verse 13. Verse 13, it continues. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Nothing initially in this verse strikes us strangely. He became a curse for us. He, he took on our sins. He became our sins. But what's up with that bit in here on cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree? Paul isn't just making up a new statement here out of thin air. He's making a reference to Deuteronomy chapters 21, verses 22 to 23, which says, and please feel free to flip to Deuteronomy 21 with me if you have a moment. So verses 22 to 23. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance. The law constantly points to our sin being separated from our midst. We see in Leviticus, Aaron sending out a scapegoat with our sins. He's symbolically placing the sins on the goat. Then he sends them out of the camp. Just like that, God has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. 
God really wanted to drill these concepts into his people's minds so they would understand what's going to take place when the promised Messiah comes. Hence, year after year, they followed these sacrificial laws that they were commanded to do. We are not only to leave this, not only called to take the sin out of our midst, we are to be holy, which is set apart, not like the other pagan nations. Our standards that we are called to is not achievable on our own. We are to be perfect. The spotless lamb they sacrificed could not take away our sins, but the one who could, the real spotless lamb that the sacrifice was pointing towards, could. The real spotless lamb was able to take our curse and become accursed so that we could be separated from our sins. Christ was only able to take on these sins because he himself had not committed any. He was blameless, spotless. He was the new Adam, and he would succeed where the first Adam had failed. Going back to uh, uh, Ray Comfort that I had mentioned before, I've heard another example he gave of our state. I don't like using analogies too much, but he, uh, but since it's not referring to Christ, it's referring to our state, I'll use it. I cannot go to a judge and say that I will take a penalty of a guilty man when I have committed that very same crime that he has. The judge can look at me and say, I'm also very guilty and I have to pay my own price and required that same sentence. I know we've talked about this a lot here, but if you're like me, I have to hear a few times for things to properly sink in. Where Adam failed in the garden, he, being our representative, a covenant head, made us all sinners. Whereas Christ, in praying in the garden to God, he asked him to take the cup from him, that burden of what was going to take place. But ultimately, he succeeded and he submitted to the Father's will. He was obedient. He passed the test in a different garden. I know we have covered a lot in Sunday school. This covered this a lot in Sunday school, but this is important. This is why Jesus had to be born of a virgin. Otherwise, if, if he had an earthly father, he would be born in sin just like the rest of us with Adam. In the Old Testament, the amount of blood that was spilled from the bulls and goats and lambs would make any modern environmentalist weep. It's a bloodbath, but how serious is our sin? When Christ was made the perfect sacrifice, he was the cursed from the Father. He was in the darkness figuratively and literally. Even the sun went black during the crucifixion, as described in Luke. Typologically, the law of the cursed one who was hung for his crimes that we read about in Deuteronomy points to Christ, but that Christ, Christ was also the fulfillment of that very law. Deuteronomy commands that the man who is hung gets buried the same day so that their land is not defiled. Lo and behold, our Savior was not left on that cross to rot and be eaten by birds and any animals that would scavenge. Crucifixion was a practiced form of execution that was not exclusive to just Jesus. People were tied or nailed at the hands and feet to a cross or beam. And it was designed to leave them in pain and suffering. Generally, the cause of death was asphyxiation. They would have to lift their legs so their body would be able to breathe, but then they would often tire out and die because their, leg, their arms would be up here 
and that weight on the, the chest would prevent you from being able to breathe in the first place. Sometimes, to pre- speed up the process, the soldiers would break the legs of the victims if they, weren't, if they weren't dying fast enough, that is. In the case of Christ, his legs were not broken, but he was already dead, so the soldier pierced his side with a spear. I tried to find sources to see if Romans would often leave up the bodies on the crosses after death or if they would actually take them down. Uh, some sources said that the bodies were most of the time taken down. Some sources say they were left up for the birds. I couldn't find a conclusive answer, but I, I wanted to know if Jesus was being taken down was an anomaly, but I couldn't seem to find anything on that. But this leads us to our next important point and the most important point. Jesus redeemed us from the curse by becoming accursed. He took the penalty we deserve. We deserve death, eternal damnation in the lake of fire where the worm does not die. There will be no end to suffering. There isn't an ounce of comfort. You would find no rest in your, and in your sins and your sins against the eternal God are never ending. There will be no getting used to it. This should tell you how serious our crimes against a holy and perfect creator are. And this should tell you even more how good our Savior is and how big a load that he took upon himself to die for his people, for those who repent and believe and put their trust in him, doing this while we were still sinners. This is why we need to be saved by grace through faith alone. In Christ's work, we can't pay that. Sorry, wrote that wrong. The Father gave us, gave his own son to be whipped, bruised, nailed through his hand and feet to a cross, tortured to death in the most painful way. Well, on the cross, in his anguish, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But did the Father forsake him? We never can look at one passage alone when we're looking at the context of uh, Scripture. We have to look throughout all of the Scriptures to understand it properly. And what we have revealed to us about the Trinity, we have an initial guardrail set up, and that is Christ and his deity cannot be separated from the Trinity. The Trinity itself cannot collapse. But in a very real sense, Jesus was taking on the weight of our sins on his shoulders, experiencing the full blow of God's justice. But Jesus, in in the midst of his suffering, when he cried out those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? is actually quoting Psalms 22. If you want to flip to Psalms 22, I'd like to read the first couple of verses and then we'll uh, look at more of it after. Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I can find no rest. That sounds grueling. Christ's time, place, death, resurrection wasn't all just planned ahead, and it happened to be during this time. It was, wasn't all just planned ahead and happened to be during this time. It was in the plans from before the foundation of the world. This was the plan for eternity. 
Rome would rise up, provide a time, a place, a language for the word to travel and spread, for the right people to kill and crucify him, down to the means of his very death. Even the animal sacrifices pointed out that his legs would not be broken. Why on earth would that need to be pointed out unless the very execution method used often broke its victim's legs to finish the job? So with your finger still in Psalm 22 there, if you continue on to verses 14 to 18, we'll skip a bit there. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. You can imagine if you're hanging by your hands, that would probably happen to your shoulders. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks, out to, sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Sounds familiar. I can count all my bones. They stare at me, stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments amongst them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Written hundreds of years before, the prophetic picture of what was going to happen to Jesus blows my mind. His hands and feet were pierced. His garments were divided amongst them. They were casting lots. He could count his bones. I, I don't know if that is from being hung and your ribs being exposed or if it was from the flogging that took place exposing his back. I am poured out like water. When Jesus was pierced in the side by the spear, it says that blood and water poured from his side. This was an incredible price, and it was no surprise. This was fully planned out. This is the plan from the beginning. So what has he done for us? I've experienced people in my life, I've known people who have experienced real hurt. So I want to ask you, who has wronged you? Who has hurt you? Someone in your life has caused you grief and distress. They have hated you. They were hostile to you. Think about how real that hurt is. You wish you could know, they could know the damage they have caused you. You don't think they understand how much it hurt. You wish everyone would know what they've done. Friends, we were hostile to God. We hated him in every aspect of our being. We broke every single law in our hearts. We rejected him, the very one who gave us life. We treated his name in the same type of filth that we use to describe excrement. And unlike us, he would be right and just to not give us a second breath. He would be more than fair to stop us all now and cast us into our deserved place. But that's amazing grace. It's unfair. We don't want what's fair. It's hard to fathom that he would die to save a single one of us yet he saves the worst of us. How could he lift a single finger to bless us in the slightest, let alone endure torture by the hands of those who have no mercy? Imagine being separated by the Father from the Father to be outside the camp, tortured by the pagan Gentiles and their evil dehumanizing devices, where the hand of God lets go of the leash so these evil men could mutilate him. Our sin costs so much, and we have the audacity to even imply for a second that it's unfair to live in hell for eternity? 
how little do you think of God? How much do you think of our, how much do we think of ourselves? How great is our God that he died the death that we should have died? And the sheer excruciating pain should show these costs. Now back in Galatians 3, our final verse in the text today is verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Earlier, I described our justification by our trust in Christ, what Christ did for us, as grace through faith alone. This idea of being justified by grace through faith alone is not exclusive to us in the New Testament. This is the same faith that saved Abraham. His faith was looking forward to the promised Messiah, and after Christ's death and resurrection, we look back with seeing the fulfillment of the promises given in the Old Testament. We also see this faith mentioned in Habakkuk 2 verse 4, which says that the righteous shall live by faith. Galatians 3.14 also points out that all who believe in Christ are now considered heirs of Abraham's blessings. I quickly want to read the covenant that was made with Abraham um, because I think it's important to know what that uh, actual blessing is. So in Genesis 17 verses 1 to 11, it says, When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall you be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God And God said to Abram, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout the generations. This is my covenant which I shall keep, which you shall keep between me and your offspring after you. Every male among you should be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in your flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. God promises people would come from this line that this promise would follow from generation to generation and the ongoing reminder of circumcision for those who are uncircumcised, spoiler in the heart, would be cut off. Second uh, Colossians 2 verses 11 to 13 says, In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. The circumcision of the heart. Wow. First, we find out we have to have a heart of stone removed. And now we need our heart circumcised too. There's something seriously wrong with our heart. 
The verse in Colossians we just read shows that our new sign today, our sign of the covenant, is baptism. Wow. It really shows how stubborn of a people we are. We don't ever seem to get it with words. We have to spend centuries repeating pictures to identify a bigger picture. And then when we end up looking at that, then in the end, we end up looking at that very symbol itself to save us. Jews often believed sometimes that they were saved by the very sign of circumcision. Many believed our animal sacrifices could take away our sin. Not the true spotless lamb that was to come, that it actually pointed to. Many believed that they were saved by their lineage alone. And lo and behold, people think that baptism is the very thing that saves them. They look at it and say, well, look, 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 Jesus said in Mark 16, 16, Whom, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. See, see, baptism is in itself part of the formula of our justification. Jesus said that's how we are saved. What it points to is the very thing that we believe that it's, it's, what it says is what saves us. I should read that again here. What it, what it points to is the very thing that we do believe that it is what saves us. Back in Colossians 2, verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised, Our baptism is our identifying with Christ in his death and resurrection. But yes, we are in fact commanded to get baptized. But it is not the physical action that saves you. It's, it's what you're saying and believing about it. In this, we continue to identify with our Savior and are grafted into the promise made to Abraham. So now that we have received the blessing of Abraham, Galatians 3.14 goes on to say, what does that mean? Oh, sorry. It goes on to say that we may receive the promised spirit through faith. What does that mean? Receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, in Christ, we've been justified, but there is an ongoing process. That process is called sanctification. In the etymology of the root word of sanctus, which in Latin means holy, or as I've heard uh, theologian Mike Winger put it, holification. To be sanctified is to be set apart. It's the work of the Holy Spirit, going back to the whole heart of stone that has been removed. We need new desires. The Holy Spirit accomplishes this. It works in us. It changes our desires from that which is evil to that which is good. It's the Spirit that fills us, giving us the fruits of obedience. That's what the fruits of the Spirit are causing, an evidence in our lives. Galatians 5, verse 22 to 24 says, But the fruits of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What does this mean? Our leaves, our fruit, they are an indicator of our status on the tree. Are we connected to the root or are we cut off? Don't just think about these things as other people see you. Don't pat yourself on the back and say to yourself, wow, people really know how good of a guy I am and people love me. They know I'm loving. They know I'm patient. They see my kindness. 
But stop and look at yourself for a second. Are these fruits something you know in your heart when you mutter under your breath? Who do you curse? This has hit me hard because I have failed so many times. This is impossible. It seems impossible. But there is progress with the Spirit working within us. We don't stay in our anger. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So why do we keep, keep on sinning if he's given us a new heart? Maybe it's because we still love our sins. But Paul is saying that if we belong to Christ, our old man, the flesh, with its desires and its passions, they're dead. We are dead in sin. We have no moral ability. No one does good. No, not one. I was born in sin, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We were in bondage to our sin. We were enslaved. But now we are dead to our sin, and we are alive in Christ and enslaved to him. Romans 6, verses 15 through 18. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either in sin, which leads to death, or of the obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you were once, who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the, under, to the standard of teaching to which you are committed. And having been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness. We have heard the language so often in our life of once being dead and now alive. We've we've lost the romance of the statement. That line should never become boring to us or seem like a quaint passing phrase that we just casually agree with and move on. We should rejoice daily. If you are dead, what can you do? Absolutely nothing nothing but exactly that which you most desire. And when, you were dead in our, when we were dead in our sins, these desires were not against our will. Our very state in which we were dead in, we also loved. I really don't hope I come across like I'm beating a dead horse into an even mushier dead horse, but this is very important. And I really want to get this point across to you uh, that we are not just saved from our sins, but it's our very sin nature that we are saved from, the desires and everything that encompasses that, because that is, in fact, a miracle. And lastly, the question that I asked at the very start of the sermon, why did he come to die in our place? It seems like a very impossible question to answer. Why would an infinite God lift as much as a finger for a creator that rejected it? For a creature that rejected him. How could he do that? Why? You've all heard of this a thousand times when Jesus told Nicodemus these words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. He died for us because he loved us. He didn't blindly lay this love out there. He died for his bride. Jesus set the bar so high, he even commanded us husbands, to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He gave himself up for the church. He took our debt because he loved us. Adam failed and didn't go before the Father and say, my wife broke the commandment and ate the fruit. 
For because I love her, and she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, I will take the penalty for her sin. Whether or not Adam had any legal standing to do that, because he is not Christ, I don't know. But that would have been the correct move. But Adam did not. He disobeyed and gave up his strength and submitted to temptation and to his wife's desires. Christ during this time did not fall for the sins in which he was tempted in every way as we were, but was without sin and became the propitiation for our sins. Us being his bride, the church, that's why he died for us, because he loved us. He loved us in a way we could never deserve. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, how awesome you are that you have done all this for your glory and chosen to give us grace and mercy. We don't deserve to approach you, but you made a way by sending your son to die a cruel death that we all deserve so that we can not only just be called not guilty, but also called righteous. We thank you for this. I ask that we would leave here knowing more about your truth you've given us in your word. And I ask that we would leave more in awe of what you did on that cross. Please continue to feed us your word and give us all that we need. Be with us. Uh, be with us and bless our celebrations this Easter. Please give us an overwhelming sense of joy. Praise things in the powerful name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Please stand.
charge is this. As God's people were called to remember all that God has done for us by sending his son who submitted to the father willingly, taking our place and taking our very sin upon himself, becoming accursed for us. And we do that in worship as a church, in family worship in our homes, and in our conversations with those around us. So go and enjoy your Easter celebrations in remembrance, feasting with family and friends in the joy and knowledge of the forgiveness of sins that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ bought for us on that cross. Let no one say we are not a joyful people because we have a lot to remember and be thankful for. Now I leave you with a benediction found in Hebrews 13, verses 20 to 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing, every good that you may do his will, working in us, that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you.